Welcome back to LPD Cast. I'm your host, Eloy Garcia. Today's guest is Dr. Jacob Chaco, the Associate Director of Diversity and Inclusion at the Santos Manuel Student Union at Cal State San Bernardino. Today, we're going to discuss how to create inclusive spaces at institutions of higher education and the importance of supporting historically underrepresented communities. Welcome, Dr. Chaco. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Eloy. Good morning and hello, everyone. To begin, could you talk to us about your role as the Associate Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Cal State San Bernardino? Absolutely. So I actually started at Cal State San Bernardino in November of 2019, 2019. And I started as the Assistant Director for Diversity and Inclusion. And so in my role, I provide guidance and support and oversight to the various affinity identity centers. So our cross-cultural center. And within our cross-cultural center, there are four centers, our Asian and Pacific Islander Center, the First People Center, the Latinx Center, and the Pan-African Student Success Center. And then also similar support guidance and oversight to the Women's Resource Center and the Queer and Transgender Resource Center. In my short time here, supervising the student staff, supporting with the different programs, and really taking on this charge to really build our centers, because many of the identity-specific centers are newer, right? Our cross-cultural center as a whole and the Women's Center and the Queer and Transgender Resource Center have been on campus for several years. I want to say the oldest being in the early 90s but really giving structure and support and the growth of these areas within the last few years in particular. And so I've been building my team. Uh, We recently had our Pan-African Center coordinators start with us in January. And yesterday our Women's Resource Center coordinators started. And very soon we'll have our Queer and Transgender Resource Center coordinators starting. We're in the midst of hiring our First People Center coordinator. And soon to follow will be our Latinx Center Coordinator and our API Center Coordinator. So we do this work to support our students, several students find these spaces are as home away from homes. You know, many of our students do live in the local area, several commute, but they engage in our centers outside of the classroom with faculty. Faculty are a vital part of our centers. They connect with students on a different level. I would say building relationships We work with a lot of the community partners to highlight lived experiences of minoritized peoples. We collaborate with different centers, right? We're not the only affinity identity centers. There's of course our undocumented student success center, the adult reentry center, the interfaith center, first generation student experiences through the office of first year, SAIL, TRIO. There's a lot of different support services that we collaborate and partner with, right? We provide education on diversity, inclusion, and equity. So there's like larger campus initiatives like the president's DEI committees and subcommittees. So we play roles in that. So I oversee the programming subcommittee for president's DEI. And we have several faculty, staff, and students who are a part of that, looking at campus-wide initiatives. And sometimes we work directly with different departments or offices on some of these topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So for example, orientation leaders, orientation leaders, they reach out to us to talk about conversations on inclusive language or the usage of pronouns, or just a kind of 
understanding of white supremacy and anti-racist work. So these are some kind of like presentations or workshops that we do. And we're trying to like build out our capacity, especially as we bring in these different coordinators to kind of have these discussions with students, with classes, with faculty staff. And so really a broad array and spectrum of events. As you might know, we are also in the middle of a move. We're building the, an expansion to the student union. So our centers will be moving to the third, third floor, the student engagement floor of the expansion. And many of our centers will grow size-wise, right? Um, they'll grow by approximately like a thousand square feet. And so looking at more programmable spaces, obviously the pandemic has had an impact on how we function, whereas students need to find these spaces virtually and we are still continuing to do programs virtually, right? So that's kind of just a gist of what we do. I hope that was helpful. Absolutely, thank you. And it sounds like the work you do is really interconnected with other offices and organizations on campus. Yes, absolutely, it has to be. Have you always known you wanted to work in the DEI space? Nope. <laughs> no idea, right? And so I tell people that, you know, I, when I was in undergrad, I was a Spanish and secondary ed major, but that wasn't always my major, right? I, when I started thinking about college and high school, like there was a lot of pressure from my family. I'm an immigrant as well. We came, we came to this country in 1994 and, you know, my parents left uh, this kind of communist government in Kerala for a better education for me and my siblings. And we came here and then they always emphasized education as our way out or education as like the success meter. Um, but then for them, success be meant becoming a doctor, lawyer, engineer. And so they really was pushing the doctor route. And, you know, I like tried, I followed their desires and I went to Loyola University Chicago for my undergrad and I was there for a year and it was very expensive, private Catholic school. And, you know, my parents co-signed for a loan the first year and they were like, oh no, you're on your own. You can't, we can't help you. And I very much realized like, you know, oh no, pre-med is not the way that I wanna go. Taking the gen eds and taking the science courses the very first year, I quickly learned like, this is not what I wanna do. And so I transferred to another university nearby in Chicago called Northeastern Illinois University. And, you know, still taking gen eds there. It was a much cheaper state institution, state school, four-year university. And I got really involved in school. I got really involved in the clubs and organizations. I got involved in the GSA or the um, LGBTQ club on campus. I got involved in the Latinx fraternity. Like I felt a lot of, um, I was looking for like a sense of belonging and a place to call home. So I found that in the fraternity. And then, so, you know, I really kind of, I changed major a couple more times. So like, you know, I did the doctor thing that didn't work out. So I tried to go like criminal justice. So like law, I was like, maybe this is the way. Quickly learned after one criminal justice class. And I was like, nope, this is not it either. And I really sat down and thought about what I wanted to do and conversations with friends. And it really seems like, and even at looking at my family history, we're like a history of teachers in my family. And so I'm like, oh my God, why didn't I see this before? Like, of course, I love teaching. I would love to teach in front of a class, right? Like, 
And then I know I really love the Spanish language. I learned it in high school and I continued it in college. So I decided to become a high school Spanish teacher. And that was wonderful experience, passed all my credentials there. And in Illinois, you major in education and it's part of your undergrad. You get your teaching license as part of your undergrad. And I student taught and everything was great. But then, you know, there's always different opportunities. I, I always say when there's an opportunity in front of you, like, why not take it, right? And so I had an opportunity one summer to study abroad. And I had that privilege to study abroad. I went to Greece for like two weeks. We had a course on campus. And then we were in Greece doing coursework and field work and came back and wrote a paper and finished a class here in the U.S. And so I had already had that study abroad experience, but then... My last year after student teaching, I had an opportunity to study abroad again. And they said, hey, we're sending a cohort of student teachers to South Korea. Um, you would student teach English as the language, not Spanish, right? Like I'm a Spanish major, but you'd teach English and you'd work with a co-teacher just like you did here in the US. And we will fly out your professor twice to observe you for supervision, just like we do here, but the opportunity would be in South Korea. You would pay for the course credit, but we would take care of the flight, your apartment's paid for, yada, yada. I was like, sign me up. <laughs> and then in student teaching in the US, you don't get paid. But for this opportunity, you got like a monthly stipend to live out there. I was like, oh my goodness, sign me up. Sounds too good to be true. So I actually went there and loved it so much that like my principal was like, hey, and this was 2008, 2009, during the market crash and the recession. My principal at that school was like, hey, why do you wanna go back to your country? Like there's no jobs. And it's true, like even before I went there, I went to like teacher job fairs and dropped my resume, no one was hiring. Like they were like, mm, you actually need to have lived in a Spanish speaking country. And I'm like, but I'm almost fluent. Like. I'm better than a lot of these other teachers who speak like white people when they speak Spanish. And I was like, what? Like, I was upset. I was angry, right? I was like, why can't I get a job? Just because there's this new policy, like you had to live in a Spanish speaking country okay. for like a semester. It was wild. And so I was like, all right, I'll take the job. So I actually came back to the U.S. in the summer to like literally pick up my diploma because I didn't walk in graduation. I was like, I'm in Korea. Why am I coming back to just walk in a ceremony? So I came back, picked up my stuff, and I moved back to Korea. So I'm sharing all of this with you. There's a, there's a process to this, right? So <laughs> yes. Even in my undergrad, so I was very confident and very sure in my queer identities. Like I was very involved in activists and very connected. I was involved in the Gay and Lesbian Straight Education Network called Glisten. And Glisten mm -hmm. had a Chicago chapter at the time. I was very involved there. I would, even as I transitioned from high school to college, I would go to like high school GSAs and talk about my activism as a high school student in GSA. And, you know, we're doing the Day of Silence program in the QTRC later this month. I was one of the students who like actively planned that in Chicago. And like we had a whole rally in March downtown where we broke silence at like 6 p.m. or something, right? And so it's great. very, very confident and affirmed in my queer identity, but racial and ethnic identity, not so much, right? And so like, right. sure, I was part of like the Indian student club and we did like cultural dances, but 
outside of that surface level stuff, I never really had conversations on race and racism. I knew racism existed, right? But I grew up in like the white suburbs of Chicago, went to predominantly white high schools and I always like fit in. I vaguely remember, you know, I was part of this program for teens by teens and I was the only brown person in there. And one night, one evening we're having conversations and one of the camp leaders was like, you know, like, let's have a real conversation. Like, let's look around the room, what's different? And I didn't see what was different. And they were like, well, the reality is that, you know, like Jacob is the only person of color in this room. And I never saw myself that way until that moment. I was like, oh no, I'm just, I'm like you all, like, I'm not different. Right? I had never really had those hard, hard conversations with myself. And so, I had a lot of racialized experiences in South Korea because of the darkness of my skin. Often people think I'm black or, and I was like, thank you for the compliment. Yes, I yes. do. <laughs> I get surveilled and, you know, mm. even post 9-11, there's all those experiences of surveillance and right. uh, especially with the ways that I look and I do get, I have adjacent experiences to black people, but I'll never know what it's like to be a black man because I'm not right. and I'm South Asian. And so it definitely, thrust into a space where, you know, it's a Korea is a homogenous society and their understandings of the United States is mostly through the media and American equals blonde hair, blue eyes. And so I was definitely othered and outcasted and had a lot of different experiences. And a lot of white Americans who were in South Korea from experiences that I've had were overtly racist, like even more racist than they are in the, in the United States. And so I, this like racial consciousness started to like boil and bug within. Right. I came back stateside um, four years after, you know, like, so I spent four years living in Korea, almost like three wow. and a half, because I wanted to go back to grad school. And I had started grad school online and just, and I give it to you folks, because I could not do it. Right. And this was yeah. pre COVID. Pre -COVID. <laughs> it's a challenge. It's absolutely it, it, a challenge. It is. And so I literally moved across the world because I didn't like online school. <laughs> and so <laughs> I came back to the US and I went, I lived away in um, Illinois State University for my master's program. And while I was there, you know, I was very involved in my fraternity, helping my fraternity with like mentoring the undergraduate students and being their like support guide, kind of like very much student affairs without really realizing that I, it was student affairs. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, this is the time of like the Trayvon Martin case and right. uh, when George Zimmerman was acquitted, like the KKK and the skinheads were out driving around honking their horns in central Illinois. And, like I was leaving Walmart and I was like, I'm going to die. Like, yeah. and sundown towns are very much still a thing, right? Like, Absolutely. Uh, in particular for black people who live in those areas right like and so from there I moved an hour away to Champaign Illinois for graduate school continued for my PhD and this is where really the catalyst was so I worked in an Asian American cultural center there um, um, I think I, I lived there for two and a half years and then I worked there for those two and a half years as a graduate assistant so really working in culture and identity centers there was really what awoke in me to, you know, first understand my identity as like Asian American and what it means to be Asian American in the United States and learning like kind of the experiences of South Asian Americans 
and Im immigration stories of various communities, learning about Pacific Islanders, Latinx and undocumented experiences, Black narratives for our Southwest Asian, North African community, so many different communities. I just became really activated. And I think the cusp of it was the presidential election in 2016, right, where uh, Trump won the presidency. And I think it woke up a lot of people of the realities of what we're about to go into. That work in the, the cultural center really was what started it. And so from there, I came to California in um, December 2016. I started a job at Cal State Fullerton, January 2017, overseeing the Asian and Pacific Islander Center at Fullerton. I was there for almost three years. I was just shy of one month of being three years. Yeah. And then within that role, it really advanced into me caring and supporting various communities uh, beyond just Asian and Asian American. I served in the interim role supporting undocumented students at Fullerton for some time as well, and really propelled me to come into this role within diversity and inclusion and supporting all of our beautiful communities, right? And so that's kind of the long answer to your question and probably <laughs> knocked out a couple of others too, right? Telling you my journey. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Sounds like you've had a lot of experience that's led to your role that you are in here at, at Cal State San Bernardino from being an international student and, and coming back and living in different parts of the country here mm -hmm. and being able to leverage all of those experiences into the work that you do every day. So what advice do you have for educators, advocates, allies, and other well-meaning people who want to create or support spaces of inclusivity at the institutions that they work at, they attend, or at their, you know, corporate places of work. Well, welcome. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> thank you for waking up and welcome to the fight. And listen to the communities, right? Like, don't make it so it's comfortable for you. It's not about you, right? Yeah. And so I think oftentimes, quote unquote, allies try to take and package DEI or diversity, equity, inclusion work and package it to their kind of feelings and their understandings no, boo, that's not, it's not about you, right? It's about the <laughs> right. people whose lived experience it is, right? You as an ally still get to go home at the end of the day and maybe not hold that experience, but that person doesn't get to take that identity off, right? right. Very much we talk about, um, you don't know what it's like in someone's shoes because you don't, you're not in that experience. So I hate that saying, mm -hmm. I know what it's like. No, you don't. Right. <laughs> I've been in your shoes before. No, you haven't. You've been in like adjacent experiences, maybe. And there might be similarities, but no experience is the same. And so to be open and understanding and no one to step back, right? It's not always you who leading. Yes, use your privilege, right? Those with privilege, I know all of us have some form of privilege. And so use your privilege to your advantage and to advance the communities that you hope to support. Many of us go into this work or go into these fields for the betterment of our own communities. And when we you know, get that degree or when we get that role, we often for sometimes forget about our communities that we even set out to start to set out to support. And so, you know, use that privilege to uplift and bring those communities up with you, not to further oppress, right? And so that's one of the key things that I can say. Thank you. I think that's really good advice. And what have you learned about yourself throughout your work in the DEI space? 
I still have a lot to learn. Oh my goodness. So, you know, learning never ends. So like for me, it's continuously learning from my students, staff, members, faculty who are still educating me on experiences that I'm unaware of, that I'm potentially prejudiced to and or I just don't know, right? And so I think as we're sharing stories and experiences with each other, we're constantly learning. So I myself, I'm humbled by the things that I continue to learn and apologize when I make the mistakes and continue to learn myself, right? And so there is no like level of, you, you don't get here and say, I am woke. Like that is not <laughs> Yeah, that's not how it works, is it? Yeah. <laughs> so what is your philosophy on leadership and how do you live out that philosophy? Oh gosh, such a, Weird term. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, which one? <laughs> Leadership. Oh, okay. um, you know, I think folks can be leaders, right? With my leadership style, I would say I'm very much, um, I'm not, I don't do hierarchy. Like, and so even when with my student assistants and or professional staff members that I supervise and I, have conversations with them. It's very much about, you know, how do I learn from you and mutually learn and respect from each other, right? It's not about the dictatorship and or like, I have the ultimate knowledge. So you all sheeple follow me. (laughs) That is not how that works. And so for me, it's like a mutual understanding of like, sure, there might be students, faculty and or staff that look up to me as a leader, but I equally look up to you folks as, you know, leaders and educators yourselves as I'm learning from you. So I kind of have that mutual understanding, respect, um, or level of appreciation for folks. And that's just how I function. And so I think there, there's like a title for this. It's not transform, is it transformative leadership? I'm not sure, but you know, so it's, uh, it's that non-hierarchical form of leadership that help people come into their own understandings of who they are as leaders. So I guess in a way transformative because it transforms folks into their own style or type of leadership. Yeah. And and for lack of better terms, it sounds like a communal leadership experience where the removal of the hierarchy really allows people to come into their skills and learn by applying leadership into everything they do. I think it's really good that you do that. I'm I'm sure that your group and your team is grateful for that. And they have a certain level of autonomy in their experience. Absolutely. You recently received two awards from your work with the NASPA organization, one for the NASPA New Professionals and one for the Asian Pacific Islander community. Can you talk to us about your participation with the organization and what it felt like to receive that recognition? Sure, absolutely. So I think NASPA is like kind of like the sealed the deal for me into student affairs. And so part of the story, so when I was working as a graduate assistant at the Asian American Cultural Center at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, my supervisor, Mr. Kenny Importante, he's over at Arizona, University of Arizona now. He said, hey, there's this organization called NASPA and there's people that you should know. And He gave me this book about Asian and Pacific Islanders in higher education, written by several folks, co-authored by several folks who were part of NASPA. 
and they were having a conference in Indianapolis. And so I, you know, reluctantly, I was like, I don't want to go. <laughs> but I went, I went to NASPA and, you know, there's some, um, he introduced me to some folks and um, they were Asian, Asian American. And they like, I was like, oh, I don't know anyone here. And one of the colleagues, she like literally took me by the hand and was like, here, let me introduce you to people. And within NASPA, there's all these different knowledge communities. There's like, ethnicity, racial, race-based, and different areas, functionalities, and student affairs. So there's like the student leadership community. There's like, and it's also split into regions. We in California are part of region six. And so it really was that conference where I saw other people like myself, Asian, South Asian, Pacific Islander folks who were in student affairs, within the realm of student affairs, doing this work. And then I met so many South Asian you know, like Dean of Students and Vice President is like, oh my God, this is really like, this is a thing. Like, this is a career. People do this. So it was coming back from that conference that really motivated me to like, okay, like, I don't want to be faculty. I want to be in student affairs. Like that sealed the deal. So from there, I like slowly became involved with NASPA APIKC, which is the Asian Pacific Islander Knowledge Community and slowly like went to some of their events that they would host. So when I would go to national conferences, eventually as I became a professional, I got to like connect more. So it really was when I got my first full-time job at Cal State Fullerton, I became more involved in the APIKC. October is Careers and Student Affairs Month. And so for that month, they were like, hey, the APIKC is doing social media takeovers. Jacob, would you like to do one day as like the day in the life? of Jacob as the coordinator of the API Center at Fullerton. I was like, sure. And I had such a blast and so many folks like reached out to me like, oh my God, you have such a busy day. Like, yes. <laughs> so much for the campus, blah, blah, blah. And I absolutely enjoyed it. I really loved it. And so from then they said, hey, our API KC, we are having an opening uh, for our board, our leadership board, our leadership team. And we're looking for a communications person. Like, you're great on Instagram. Like, why don't you apply? And so I applied. And this was 2019. The conference, the national conference was in Los Angeles. And so I started my term in Los Angeles in 2019 and actually just ended my term this past March at NASPA. And so I started as, as the communications co-chair for NASPA APIKC. And then other folks saw my work. And so the region six, California region six director was like, hey, Jacob, tap, tap. Like, I love what you do in the APIKC. Can you come and also be our social media coordinator for region six? And so wow. I got tapped as the region six co-coordinator for communications as well. So now I'm like overseeing two sets of social media accounts one for the APIKC and one for, you know, and then I got really involved and now I'm on like the regional board and I also support with the planning of a future conference. So we're having NASPA Western Regional Conference in November pending CDC guidelines in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks helped me put together this nomination for the um, inclusion award for the NASPA new professionals. So new professionals are one to five years I'm still under my five, so I'll reach five years in January of working in student affairs. And so they nominated me, folks put in a letter of recommendation for me as in the work that I do in inclusion as a new professional. So I was very honored to receive that award. 
and then unknowns to me, uh, the board, the leadership team and the board nominated me for the very involved participant, VIP. I love it. And so it was, <laughs> That's that, great. was that was through the API KC. Yeah. It was such an honor, especially because we served during the time of the pandemic. Yeah. It's difficult to engage with people outside of conferences where conference time is really when the time everybody connects. But because through our social media, we've been really be able to engage with our membership, you know, via Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, outside of the conferences. So it's been really, really in a wonderful experience to do that for NASPA. And so NASPA really is my like professional home. So, you know, like students call these centers, homes away from home. Many of us professionals, we have professional organizations where we call home, which is our professional development time where we learn from each other about best practices or, um, you know, about the work that we're doing in diversity, equity, inclusion, or in conduct or in housing or whatever we're doing, right? And so NASPA really is my professional home, but a place where I really engage in the scholarship of my career and really do my professional development. Yeah, such an honor. That's wonderful, thank you. I'm really glad that you were able to receive that acknowledgement because it does sound like you are a very involved participant. So Jacob, what advice do you have for students that are transitioning from undergrad into graduate school? It sounds like you've had experience studying in different states and that change, that move can be difficult for some students. So what advice do you have for us? Absolutely, be open, right? And so the writing gets a bit more intensive in graduate school. So definitely utilize the writing services, especially if you didn't utilize it in undergraduate. So, But if you have a if you're comfortable writing and you're comfortable, you know, writing those big 10 page papers, I, th- I found a lot of my courses in graduate school were heavy on papers. And it's not so much like quizzes, there might be quizzes, but it's not so much like tests, right? At least in my program, it's very heavy on like the 10 plus page paper per class. And a lot of your grade depended on it for at least in my experience. And so, you know, become very comfortable with writing. And if you're one of those people that you are shy from ha- asking help, we gotta, we gotta work on that, right? And reaching out to the either like through our centers to connect with other resources or the writing and door tutoring center on campus to really help you kind of hone your craft and work on, it can be as early as your personal statement and things like that. I did not go traditionally from like right after undergrad to graduate school. I obviously I was in Korea teaching and took some time off before I entered, right? And, you know, you got to find what's right for you. Some folks go right into school. Some folks take a gap year. And I tell people with the gap year, it's a break, but it really isn't. Because like most students who are going right into grad school, they spend their last year of undergrad applying to grad school. If you are doing that and you, you defer your acceptance and take a gap year, that makes sense. But if you didn't apply, then in your gap year, you should be applying during your gap year for the next year, right? So that's something that no one tells you about, but it's a reality. It's hard to leave and go somewhere else, right? For me, it was easy. I was closeted at home. I was not out to my family. I lived with my family most of my life and kind of had my own like secret life being queer. Although like 
the signs were everywhere. Like I had rainbow bears in my car. I had the HRC sticker on my car, which is usually the giveaway. It, it was really easy for me because being in another country, I get to be myself, right? Like, so I took that opportunity because it was that easy decision. I, do, I don't have that close ties people do to their families, right? And so it was such an easy decision for me to like pick up and leave. And doing that once made it easier the second time. Like, I know my friends were so mad. Like, I left Chicago to go live in Korea. I came back to Chicago for like three months. Like, I think it was October, November, December. I came back for three months. And then I moved again to central Illinois for graduate school. I lived there for the next two and a half, three years. And then... I didn't even move back to Chicago. I moved from there to Chicago for like two days or a week. And then I moved to California like, for a new job. And I've been in California ever since. I think I've been back to Chicago twice to visit, right? And so my friends are always like, damn, like we only get you for like two seconds and then you're gone. And so I, you know, I still have my friends from Chicago and I connect with who I connect with. But for me, because of my lived experiences and traumas and things that I've been through, I have an easier time just picking up and going, right? And now it's more difficult because I'm married. I have my husband. We have our, our dog, Mochi. <laughs> but we're, you know, I think still we're kind of open to those ideas of moving. And so it's really, when I tell students, like, you know, if you're looking to go somewhere to, you know, go. Like, if you get accepted to graduate school and they're paying for it, what, you're sacrificing two years of your life? right? And you go to the middle of nowhere. Yes, it's hard, especially if it's like in a school in the middle of nowhere. And there's not really a lot to do but the university. And yes, as a person of color, as a queer and or trans person, it might be really difficult. But look at the resources that they have. What I often tell students is what are your non-negotiables, right? List out your non-negotiables and see if they really are non-negotiables or if there are ways that you can make sacrifices, right? And look at the resources that exist on campus and in the community. Will you be supported, right? Are there resources? Are there people who are not just allies, but are there queer and trans people of color there that you can lean on and connect with? And you can connect with current students who may have similar experiences in your program, or you can ask, like most campuses have LGBT queer resource centers and you can definitely reach out and be like, hey, are, is there like, if you know, if you identify as a trans person, you can be like, hey, is there a trans student, a trans male or someone who identifies as me that I can connect with who's currently going there so I can know more? I mean, it's great to hear from the staff, but that's cute and all, right? But they want to tell you and sell it to you to come here. But what are the experiences of the students? And then maybe if you go there, and, and you think about it like, oh yeah, it's just a two year and then I'll just always move back to California. What if you love it, <laughs> right? Start with your non-negotiables and then really research the school, the program. And I re recently read somewhere like, you don't have to work with the best professor in the field. Like you wanna work with the faculty member that is kind and caring and supportive, right? <laughs> like the best faculty member might be the best faculty member in the world but might be unavailable to meet with you, right? And so you're out high and dry, hanging on a limb, like, like barely surviving, right? You don't want that to happen to you. 
So you can find faculty that are supportive, find places you know, that support your identities and that areas you can thrive. But again, it's good to know what you're comfortable with and not comfortable with, right? And it might be that you have to have a conversation with a friend, mentor, colleague who can help you navigate some of these conversations. I hope that helps. <laughs> it does, absolutely. Thank you, that, that is really good advice. Particularly the start with your non-negotiables and then ask, are they really non-negotiables? <laughs> and push further into those conversations with ourselves. As we wind down, I'd really like to ask you, to this point, what are you most proud of? It's going to be cheesy. <laughs> I'm really, really, every time I see the growth in my students, oh my gosh, so proud, so proud. Whether it's big wins, little wins, whatever it is, you know, seeing students from when they first start to when they graduate. I've, obviously, I don't have that because I've only been here a short time at Cal State San Bernardino. But, you know, I've met students still and seeing the amount of growth that I've seen from having to navigate fully virtual to having to navigate from being in person to fully virtual to, you know, graduating. Those moments are near and dear to my heart. Like, seeing my students grow, seeing myself grow into these roles and capacities, right? As I told you, I never dreamed that I would be in a diversity, equity, inclusion position. I was very problematic as a college student. I made mistakes and stereotyped and, you know, probably caused harm to my fellow classmates. And so I really reflect on my experiences and apologize to folks that I needed to connect with and I'm still self-learning. So I think those are those are proud moments for me in my own learning and the growth of others. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I appreciate this conversation, Dr. Chuck. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was my conversation with Dr. Chaco. I hope you found value in the information we shared with you today. LPD Cast was created and is produced by me, your host, Eloy Garcia. If you'd like to reach me, you can find me on Instagram at LPDCast, or you can email LPDCast at gmail.com. To become a sponsor, visit anchorfm.com forward slash LPDCast, and you'll receive new merchandise every month. I appreciate you tuning in today, and as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>